0: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. Before we begin, I want to tell you that this episode goes deep into trauma, into the way America's history damages everyone. It includes graphic descriptions of violence against Black people, along with suggestions of ways to overcome its ripple effects. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. That was Miss Viola Fletcher. She's 107 years old. She was just a little girl at the time of the massacre. And a few weeks ago, she testified in front of a U.S. House subcommittee about what it was like. A country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. Telling this story has been extremely tough. My sleep is off. I've been having more nightmares than usual of being chased or trapped in a dark basement. One night, I even found myself mapping out an escape plan in my head in the event of a fire or an attack. Of course, it pales in comparison to what the survivors have had to live through. I've talked to so many people in Tulsa. I wanted to understand how the experiences of their grandparents and great-grandparents shaped them. But now I have many more questions about trauma and its impact on our bodies. So for this episode, I'm going to spend the entire time in conversation with a psychotherapist. His name is Resmaa Menakem.
1: One of the first things that I do, especially with black bodies, is orienting. And that is that the simple act of just looking behind you and finding the exits and the windows and the doors can help you and help your body begin to understand that there's nothing behind me and I can leave whenever I want to. So that's what I would suggest me and you do and also suggest that the audience does as they're listening. Just take a moment and use your hips when you turn around. Mm-hmm. That's the psoas muscle. The psoas muscle is the part of the body that's responsible for mobilization and immobil—yeah, immobilization. Mm-hmm. So this idea of just looking and then just notice if there's just a lessening of something not a whole lot just a little bit and that's all we're trying to get to good breath good breath good breath
0: yeah okay Yeah. yeah. this is blind spot tulsa burning the story of a community set on fire and the scars that remain 100 years later. I'm Kalalia. Episode 5, The Body. Resmaa Menakem is based in Minneapolis. He spends a lot of time working with organizations during civil unrest. He also focuses on the effects of racialized trauma for African-Americans, European-Americans, and police officers. His work has taken him all over the world. He spent two years managing counseling services for 53 U.S. military bases in southern Afghanistan.
1: There was not necessarily a lot of me instructing them, you need to do this or you need to do that. It was a lot of, I'm here with you. You're not doing this by yourself. We're here together. This is what you're experiencing as horror is a real thing, right? Those types of things helps the body begin to tap into communal resource when its own individual resource has been tapped.
0: So when a person calls on a trusted family member, friend, elder, or therapist, and they cry, vent, or yell... They are tapping into a communal resource to get through whatever they're going through in the moment, the hurt or pressure that is far too much to handle alone. Resma's book, My Grandmother's Hands, is part narrative and part workbook for healing trauma in our bodies and reckoning with our ancestral past. So I really would like to start with some definitions, just so we are all on the same page here. Mm-hmm. How would you define or describe trauma?
1: So trauma in the simplest form, right, is the way that I think about it is anything that happens to you that's too much, too fast, too soon or too long, coupled with nothing or not enough of something reparative that should have happened. Right. Mm. Trauma is personal and particular and just because something bad happens to you doesn't mean that you're going to be traumatized, right? Trauma has a stuckness component to it.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. And so when you talk about trauma healing, yeah, t- yeah. what does that mean?
1: So when I'm talking about trauma healing, I'm talking about it both, and particularly when I'm talking about racialized trauma, right? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about a trauma that is both individual and communal, Right mm. When our people were hung, when, when they hung a black woman from a bridge and made sure that that bridge was the one that all of the people had to walk over, that was not done for the people that they lynched and hung. That was done for the communities that were left mm. Right to instill terror and horror in those bodies. The Tulsa Massacre was done to instill terror and horror to those people that were left right hmm. and so when i'm talking about trauma healing i'm talking about a reclaiming of that resource so the trauma energy gets metabolized in the body and used for fuel for our freedom as opposed to fuel that burns us fuel that 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 makes me turn on people that look like me as opposed to turning towards people that look like me mm
0: mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm. And so you you talked about your work focuses a lot on the body uh-huh, and uh-huh. our body's reaction to trauma. So yeah. like, for example, you use a, a phrase white body supremacy yeah. instead of just white supremacy. Yeah. So why, why ground things in the body?
1: Well, because the idea of white just white supremacy, people end up doing kind of like a head gymnastics with it, right? The moment you say white supremacy, everybody nods their head. Oh, yeah, I really know what that means. Yes. You know I mean? People, mm-hmm. people just start, you know, like, and it's really an intellectual thing that they're talking about, right? You yeah. know, and so for me, white body supremacy is visceral. Right. It breaks bones. Mm -hmm. It thwarts people's movement. It rapes. It steals land. It genocides people. It enslaves you you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. There is a visceral component to it. It was it's not just a moniker, white, you know, white people and whiteness. Mm -hmm. It is actually a philosophy and structure that's ensconced in law. Right.
0: Right. I wanna play a particular piece of tape. There's this local activist, a man named Chief Amashan, and we talked to him for episode one. And he he's a descendant. You know, he has a moment where we're talking about the impact that the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre had on survivors as well as descendants, right?
1: Yeah.
0: For him and his community, the community of North Tulsa, which is predominantly Black, There's been high rates of crime, high rates of drug abuse and health disparities far greater and different than South Tulsa, the white part of town. And what happens to you when you're trying not to internalize this racism? So let's let's listen. Sick people throw up, right? (laughs) You know, because you because you got to get rid of whatever this infection is. So you find ways to purge. You find ways to excrete something that's evil inside yourself. It doesn't make you evil. It means you're trying to excrete something to eliminate something that is actually evil, right? We're trying to prevent ourselves from totally internalizing racism, internalizing white supremacy. Hmm. Hmm.
1: You know. Um,
0: what are you thinking?
1: You know, uh, uh, the the piece around um, ingesting white-body supremacy, we already have. Yeah. We ingested it in our mama's womb through epigenetics, right? Mm-hmm. And even though you don't know what it is, you have notions of it.
0: Resma bars an analogy. If you picture the world we live in as a big, vast ocean, you might imagine that white supremacy is a shark, But actually, the culture of white supremacy is the water, the water that surrounds us, the ocean itself. And we are drowning in it.
1: White body supremacy weathers my brain architecture. It weathers my muscular skeletal system. Mm -hmm. Right. This is why that black women die most often in childbirth and why their babies die is because we don't account for the weathering and corrosive effects of dealing in a system that sees me as species, as lower primate. And so for me, the crime and the health disparities and all that stuff, if we don't ask the question, I'm wondering how the Tulsa massacre of my people affected my cortisol levels. And not only that, but then the continued redlining and the continued not having access to economics, uh, continue, all of those pieces that if we don't ask questions like, what are the effects of the Tulsa massacre on its descendants? What might they pass down to their children that their children now only have notions of it because they don't have the context or the healing that should have been done so the trauma keeps getting passed down?
0: Yeah, so please explain that, how my ancestors, their trauma Mm -hmm. is passed down to me, how I inherited that trauma. How does that happen?
1: So when my mama is raising me, right? And she tells me not to do something, right? That's one way I learned. When my mama said, boy, let let me tell you something. When we get in this store, don't ask for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And I'm looking at her and she goes, you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying, ma'am. Yeah. I'm telling you, Mm -hmm. I'll embarrass your butt up in here. Don't you? Okay? Mm -hmm. That's instruction. That's one way I learned from my mom. Another way I learned from my mom is by what my mama recoils from and what she leans into. Mm -hmm. The things that she takes on and the things that she goes around.
0: Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm.
1: And my mama may be doing that because her mama and then her mama and her mama. So time decontextualizes trauma. Listen to what I'm saying. So Trauma in a person across time can look like personality. Mm. Trauma in a family across time can look like family traits. Trauma in a people decontextualized across time can look like culture, can look like health disparities, can look like crime. Mm-hmm. Can, do you understand what I mean? mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: In his work, Resma often tells stories based on historical events to get us to truly experience the impact of our behavior now and in the past. I was hoping he could help me understand what's going on in white bodies when they are confronted by race and racial violence. He told me a story that starts out innocently.
1: There's a little boy and a little girl, and they're in their living room and they're playing. And mom is there cooking. And then you hear a door open in the front. And standing there is a man. And as soon as the kids look up and see him, they jump up and run to him. And they jump in daddy's arms. And daddy's laughing. Mom comes out the kitchen. And she walks up and she's hugging him. And he's looking at everybody. He's like, hey let's go to a park. And so they all load up the station wagon and they get in. Mom fix some food and um, they're driving. They get to the park and the little boy looks up and he sees that the parking lot of the park is filled with cars. And he's happy because as he's seeing the cars, he's also seeing a couple cars that he recognizes. And these are cars of parents of friends of his. So soon as dad parks, they jump out and they run to the park mm-hmm. and they see their friends and they're jumping around and little boy is playing with one of his friends and he notices the smell of barbecue. And he's like, man, that smells good. But there's something else in the air. I'm not quite sure what it is, but he keeps playing. About a half hour later, dad grabs his son and his daughter and he says, I want to show y'all something. And they're like, Yeah. So they start walking, and they walk through this crowd. It's a big crowd. It's a lot of people, right? And people that the little boy recognized and the little girl recognize. When they look up, they see the owner of the baker. They see the town deputy. They see the sheriff. They see all of these things, and they're walking. And it gives them a sense of community. They get to the opening, and it, as the opening opens up, the little girl and the little boy is on the side of their father's holding their hand. And what they're watching and what they see in front of them is a lynching. And the barbecue and the smell are black bodies. And the little boy and the little girl are looking. Hmm. They're watching this horror. Part of them may have want to lean in and give aid. And part wants to recoil. But they can't because daddy is leaning into it. I'm learning from what daddy is leaning into. I'm learning for what's right and what's wrong by what daddy and mama lean into and recoil from. Now, take that little boy where that thing that happened inside of him was never addressed. And now he has children and they have children. And this notion of, What's right and what's wrong and what's true and not true is now embedded in them, decontextualized, unspoken, and now looks like culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's what we that's what we are a part of.
1: That's it. That's the water.
0: That story is drawn from the 1920 lynchings of three young Black circus workers in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm talking with psychotherapist Resmaa Menachem. His book is My Grandmother's Hands. Coming up, we'll talk about the impact of living in a culture built on the lie of white superiority. That's next. This is Blindspot. While change may not happen
1: overnight, the movement for a more just society is gaining momentum. Tune in to Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, where every week you can learn about the stories that are impacting communities of color from people of color. With hosts DeRay McKesson, Kaya Henderson, Miles Johnson, and Diara Ballender, Pod Save the People gives an exciting blend of politics, culture, and social issues all in one place, from book censorship to discussing Beyonce's impact on society. Tune in to Pod Save the People every Tuesday on your favorite podcast platform.
0: This is Blindspot Tulsa Burning. I'm Kalalia. For this episode, I'm talking with Resma Menakem, a therapist who focuses on racial trauma and healing. So this podcast series is about the legacy of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many people have asked us this question, you know, why, why do we continue to rehash these stories? Mm-hmm. Something so very painful that happened so long ago.
1: Think about this. We have a whole system, a whole legal system that's based on what we call precedence, right? What precedence is, is something that happened in the past that you are using to make decisions around what's happening now, Mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. And why is it that Black people are never afforded precedence? We're never afforded the opportunity to say, look, this thing that happened to me and my people has done something. And we're asking for redress when it comes to that something that has been done. Don't think that the past is the past. The past is prologue. The past is instructive. The white body has been conditioned around their comfort trumps black liberation, that their comfort trumps black people living, their comfort trumps everything. When Uh, White folks get uncomfortable. Black people lose jobs, lose lives, lose towns, lose employment, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you have is, in terms of Tulsa, you have black people who are doing well, Mm -hmm. right? You have black people who are trading with each other. You have black people who are trading with white people. You have black people who are uh, doing things and making moves, right? And what happens in the white body collective is that the white body collective gets uncomfortable. And uncomfortable to the white body collective means dangerous, means not safe. So all it takes was something that was not really real to happen. Mm -hmm. And it sparked the imagination of terror and horror in white bodies. And here's what I want to say. White people have been victimized, but it ain't been by us. It's been by other white folks. So until white bodies begin to take to task the elite white bodies that are breaking their backs um, in this structure and directing that on us, until white bodies begin to develop a culture around that, Mm -hmm. don't tell me what you can't do because you don't have the courage or and you haven't dealt with your own moral injury enough to heal from it.
0: In his book, Resma has chapters for white Americans. He writes, "Your white body was not something you chose, but the imaginary construct of whiteness is something you can change." After reading that, I felt both hopeful and concerned because it often feels that very little has changed.
1: White folks really do not have a collective agility or efficacy when it comes to race. None. Mm -hmm. Because they have not had to collectively, right? This is why when you go into a discussion with most white bodies around race, there are only a number of different strategies that they have to go through the discussion. It's either anger, it's either pseudo fragility, it's either pushback, it's either tears, mm-hmm. it's either uh, rage, right? It's prescribed that when you start to have a discussion around race, all of these things are going to happen. And that's because they have no practice with it. Right. Everybody else has been raced, and they have been standardized. Mm. And that's why white folks got a whole lot of stuff to do with regard to their own healing. And this is the other reason why when white folks come up to me and they're talking to me and they say stuff like, you know, I'm an ally. I've been, a, I've been an ally for a, a lot. Of, I'm, I'm here with you. Mm-hmm. My first question is this, who are your people? Don't tell me you're an individual ally because your individual kindness and your individual niceness is inadequate to deal with the level of carnage and terror and horror that black people have to face and indigenous people have to face and brown bodies and bodies of culture have to face every day. I don't want you to spit in my food, right? Mm -hmm. I want you to be nice to me. But that is not a redress for white body supremacy. Mm. And so if you are not developing culture around a living embodied anti-racist culture, then your declarations, white folks love declaring themselves apart and different from other white bodies and other white folks, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What I ask white folks is that, how are you going to name your children? Are you naming your children in the context of a living embodied anti-racist culture and practice building? Are you doing that? If you're not, it is inadequate because all you have to do is get uncomfortable enough and stop and cut your blonde dreadlocks and, and start eating your kale again and move out to a suburbs. And nobody ever knows you was in the mix with this, right? And so this is really not about your own individual proclivities. This is really about, are you going to take the time in white culture, among white people, to build a living, embodied, anti-racist practice and culture building?
0: Yes. And so I want to just touch on something you just said, If they don't name their children, Mm -hmm. can you just expound on that a little bit? First, I was like, "Do you mean name them like Lucretia?" Like, what do you mean? (laughs) I I know you didn't mean that, but that's the first thing that popped in my mind. I would (laughs) look.
1: No, I don't. I I don't mean (laughs) naming little white girls Lucretia. What, (laughs) What I mean is this. I'm committed to doing this work for the rest of my life. I can't do nothing else but this work for the rest of my life. If you tell me you're down with me, you're committed to doing this work for the rest of your life. That means how your children are born is in a particular way. Mm -hmm. How you name your children... Are in a particular way. Are you naming your children after within white culture after the Grimke sisters? Are you naming your children, your boys, after John Brown? Are you naming? You you see what I mean? Like like Mm -hmm. who are the? And how are you raising them? How are you raising them with an understanding that they are advantaged? Yeah differently than my Mm -hmm. children. How are you doing that? Mm -hmm. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. And that's a culture. That is not a strategy. Mm -hmm. They want to name their babies Lucretia, go right ahead. Mm -hmm. But that's (laughs) not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something much deeper, something more of essence, and something more tied to creation than just strategy.
0: Yeah, I get it. I get it. But, I mean, going back to 1921, the massacre... This woman talked to a journalist and she was living in Greenwood and her house was set on fire. She was like close enough to watch her home being burned. And, you know, she says, I sat watching my modern 10 room and basement burn to ashes. And this old white man came by and he addressed me as Auntie. And he says, It's awful, ain't it? And he'd offer me a dollar to buy dinner with. Yeah. What's going on there? What do we need to understand about that interaction?
1: First thing we need to understand is what I said earlier. White folks' kindness and white folks' niceness is inadequate. I mean, think about it. I mean, that's such a clear example, right? That this woman has lost everything, probably even people she loved. She done lost everything. Mm -hmm. And this nice old white man gave her a dollar, Mm -hmm. Right. That that may be nice, that may be kind, but it is woefully inadequate. What would have been nicer if he would have taken that dollar and bought some ice cream or did something with other white folks so they can develop a living embodied anti-racist culture so that didn't happen, Mm. right? That's the work. The work is not the dollar, but he could give a dollar and be like, I did a nice thing for auntie right he didn't do anything what he did was was alleviate his own moral complicity that's what he did and so for me this stuff is very clear white folks niceness and kindness is a poor substitute for creating a culture that abolishes white by the supremacy and to white folks start doing that is just performance it's performative and um and uh, i don't care to participate in it. yeah yeah because because what has happened to us and our people is brutal and continues to be brutal and so I don't believe that black people are that we are the way that we are is because we are trying to fit in better with white folks I think we are w- the way we are is because that's how we came here
0: mm-hmm. yeah and if that trauma response you know mm-hmm. if it's as deep as our unconscious being ourselves mm-hmm. if it's there before we're even coming to this world and how can we fix it
1: we we fix it by doing what our people have done right for 250 years the um, white body had full and unfettered access to the black body think about this it is relatively new that me and you can be talking the way that we're talking on on this thing mm-hmm. and be somewhat sure that there's probably not a lynch party out here waiting for us, mm-hmm. right? That's new, sis. That's, I mean, that's really new that we can no, be doing true. this, right? Mm-hmm. For most of our lives... The white body has had full and unfettered access to every part of our bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a problem for them because when they don't get that deference, something happens to them and they have not examined that as a collective when black people have their own agency, when black people have their own sense of being. And so for me, it really is about as black people, how do we begin to turn towards each other more, reclaim those pieces and metabolize that energy for our freedom as opposed to using that same energy to burn each other
0: up. hmm hmm So you're saying it is possible to heal ourselves?
1: It is possible. It, not only is it possible, it's being done. <laughs> if it wasn't being done, there would be no reason why you would reach out to me and want to talk to me.
0: Resma, it's been a pleasure... Thank you. I appreciate your time, your energy, mm-hmm. your dedication.
1: I appreciate you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Rezma Menikim. He's the author of three books. His latest is My Grandmother's Hands Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. You can learn more about his work at his website, resma, that's R-E-S-M-A-A dot com. Our next episode is the last in the series. Now that we've heard what led up to the massacre, what do we do, all of us, with that knowledge? If you care about the history of America's black victims of racial violence. You live in the world differently than if you are indifferent or simply ignorant about it. That's next time on Blind Spot. Mm-hmm. 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 Blindspot Tulsa Burning is a co-production of the History Channel and WNYC Studios in collaboration with KOSU and Focus Black Oklahoma. Our team includes Caroline Lester, Alana Casanova Burgess, Joe Plord, Emily Mann, Jenny Lawton, Emily Botine, Quresh Ali Lansana, Bracken Clark, Rachel Hubbard, Anakwa Gemina, Jamie Floyd, and Cheryl Duvall. The music is by Hannes Brown, Amari Ford, and Isaac Jones. Our executive producers at the History Channel are Eli Lair and Jesse Katz. Raven Majia Williams is a consulting producer. Special thanks to Zainab Mohammed, Jennifer Lazo, Andrew Golis, and Celia Moeller. I'm Kalalia. Thanks for listening.